Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Thanks for being with us this week. And we're going to start the show off this time by getting into the details of the first ever DOD financial audit. After well over a decade of preparation, the first one is now done. And as we've discussed before, the department obviously did not pass. No one expected it to. The huge audit teams that spent the previous year scouring the military services and defense agencies came away with more than 2,400 separate findings and recommendations. Most of those results are not easy to understand for non-auditors like me, but one thing the DOD Inspector General did this year was to write up a summary document that explains the first audit in layman's language. And it, it genuinely is a very useful guide to understanding where the department stands. Uh, we'll, we'll post a link to that on our show page at federalnewsnetwork.com. Another feature of that document is that it breaks down the material weaknesses the IG identified after assessing all of those audit findings. And it identifies six of those that the IG thinks are most important. To walk through those top six for our radio audience, we invited Carmen Malone to join us on this week's program. She is the Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Audit and Financial Management Readiness. So, Carmen, let me, let me have you actually start us off a little bit by talking with us about why you called out six of these 20 department-wide material weaknesses as significant. What I mean, what's special or unique uh, uh, or fundamental about those six in particular, and, and why did you decide it was useful to, to single out several of them? So a material weakness is a group of deficiencies that will, that could have a material impact on the financial statements as they're presented. And so as we started going through the um, 21, I believe, material weaknesses that were identified, these six stood out as either having the biggest impact to being audit ready or having the biggest impact to the financial statements. So, for example, the financial management systems and information technology material weakness um, hits all across DOD. Um, DOD has over 200 um, systems that talk and impact the financial statements. So if you have material weaknesses there, obviously that, that could be a huge impact to your financial statements. Um, inventory and property, plant, and equipment are some of the larger um, assets, as, as long, along with Sun Balance with Treasury, the larger assets for the Department of Defense. So without getting those correct and making sure that you have a full listing, a, a complete listing, and that all the assets exist that are on that listing, um, those are huge weaknesses that would have an impact because until you do that, you can't actually value the property and inventory correctly. Um, and then when it comes to auditing, having a universal transaction, that usually is the main starting point. So without a valid universal transaction, it's hard to really get an audit off the ground. And then finally, the financial statement compilation is the end game for DOD is to be able to compile all the different components and right now they have a huge material weakness there and in, in not being able to do that correctly. So those are the, why those six were important, because in our opinion, those have the biggest impact from the audit and for DOD along the way. So let's try and get a little into a little bit more detail on each of those, and we'll just take them in the order that, that you list them in the report, starting with financial management systems and information technology. And I, I guess one of the surprising things to me about the fact that that is still such a huge problem in DOD is just the amount of time and money they have spent over the years to implement modern ERPs. And, and as you note in the report, 
1,000 out of the roughly 2,000 notices of finding and recommendation have, have to do with IT and not audit issues per se. So why does that remain such a huge challenge for the department? The department is in the process of trying to find the right fit across the board with as many entities as they have will work. And so as they have um, developed systems, they are gradually getting rid of some. I think we I think we even talk about that in the report that they do have some plans to get rid of some of these systems, but you can't just get rid of them as soon as you bring a new one up because a lot of the information is old and may have not been formatted in a way that it might fit into a new system. The systems need to be able to be able to talk to each other. In addition, with as many locations as they have, they may have an individual system, but by the time it gets out to another location, it may have been to be tweaked. And that's considered what we say another instance of that system. Well, those can cause some problems with testing as well as controls over those systems. So the department has you know, formed an entire group that works solely on working on these thousand or so um, NFRs to try to get them down to brownout systems and blackout systems and reduce that number and try to focus solely on the um, enterprise readiness and planning systems, what we call ERP systems, that will do more than just one function, but kind of take a transaction from beginning to end. And so would it be fair to say that those those newer ERP systems are basically in good shape and audit compliant and that the problem really is that the military services and components have one foot in both worlds, one in ERP land and one where they're still relying on legacy systems for a lot of things? I, I think it's fair to say they have a foot in both worlds and they're, they're doing their best to get to one. Um, to say that the ERPs are you know 100% ready, I think that that would be inaccurate. Um, they do have some work that they have to do. The ERPs is an instance where they may have one ERP, but by the time it got to a certain location, they wanted it to do one other task. So they tweaked some of the coding in it, and that created another instance of that ERP. So they're trying to identify those, figure out what they can do to make one ERP for everyone to work in certain instances. And that's just going to take some time because it it's not something you can fix in a day when it's been created over years, the problem. So they are working it. Um, I think they're making some good progress in that and developing this one group that focuses solely on the information systems and information technology is a huge step. And all of the components are involved in that, in that group. And so they're all being able to provide their input and learn the lessons from others as they do this. All right, so let's move on to the next major material weakness that you identified, which is uh, universe of transactions. And I think, as you point out, this is not just an issue for auditors. It's something that the department itself could use as a improved management tool once it once it gets to that place where it does have one identifiable universe, right? Yes. They, um, so the universe of transactions, obviously, from an audit standpoint, is huge for us because we can't audit what we unless we have that universe of transactions. But for the department, once they're able to identify all of these transactions, there are things that they can do through analytics and identifying where multiple components could be spending um, money in the same way, where it could be beneficial to bulk buy, or they could be finding improper payments. Um, if they're able to identify universal transactions of inventory, they'll be able to identify exactly where all their inventory is and how much they have of it. 
So these are basic tools from a management accounting standpoint that will be extremely beneficial to the senior leaders within the department, as well as the, man- and the managers at the lower level as well. Can you give me an example of, of how, you know, having that universe might, might improve management of a particular program? Uh, yes. If you, uh, I'm going to use um, an example with like um, the F35 program. Mm-hmm. And so if they have all of the transactions, especially because it crosses several components, the Navy may be purchasing something for the F-35 that another component does not know they're purchasing, and they may be purchasing it as well. So if the department as a whole has this list of transactions and can break it out to the F-35, they can provide the F-35 program office this information. They can start analyzing it and seeing where they might be able to save money through bulk purchases. They may be making duplicate payments. And this would allow them to use their funds in a more efficient and effective manner as they continue the program. All right. And I'm, I'm going to group number three and number four on your list into, into one question here because they both have to do with DOD having accountability for its stuff, one dealing with more with spare parts and one dealing more with real property. Uh, correct me if I'm simplifying that too much, but, but differentiate those two material weaknesses for us a little bit and, and tell us where DOD is and why you find those, those two issues concerning. So as of right now, for inventory and general property, plant, and equipment, the reason we break these out is just because they are considered different assets. But they do have a similar problem with accountability of the assets right now. And so the department is also taking a stand on these as well, as this is um, a couple of their top priorities in recent memos that have been issued out to the department. And what we're saying here is that we found instances where we have gone out and said, give us a list of a certain asset and how many you have and where they're located. And when we go, we either find that they have more or the ones on their list don't exist. They either can't tell us where they could be or maybe the condition isn't correct. Meaning that you could say that I think in the example we gave was that there was rotor blades for a Black Hawk helicopter could not be used, but they remained in the inventory record. Well, if you have something in your inventory records that actually can't be used, it impacts your readiness in a way that we don't really want because at that point, you're not going to order something because you think you have it. And when it comes time to needing it, suddenly you don't. And then we also found instances where things had been disposed of, but were still on the records. That That's a similar issue in the sense that you believe you have it, but it's actually been disposed of. So. From an inventory standpoint, that is um, a big deal, as well as property, plant, and equipment. And right now, the department is focusing a lot on what we call existence completeness, making sure that they have a full account of all their inventory and real property. So that is um, a huge focus for the department in fiscal year 19. And we're already seeing a lot of um, effort going into this from the department, making sure that they can identify all of their inventory and real property. And, and you touched on this a little bit, but those those two areas seem like a, a perfect example of why this entire audit exercise is not just a, a, a green eye shades process. There is a direct connection to readiness. Oh, 100 percent. And th- and this is, I think, a learning lesson. And we're seeing it within the department as well. As, um, it's not just from a financial statement audit. We don't just deal with the financial community and the financial managers. We are out talking to the everyday operating people and making sure that they understand that what they do impacts 
across the board, not just the financial statements, but this information will be used and as a central location for decision makers across the department. From a readiness, from a purchasing, um, logistics, if the information is accurate for financial statements, it's going to be accurate for the decision makers, which ultimately affects the operations and readiness of the department. Carmen Malone is the Deputy Assistant DOD Inspector General for Audit and Financial Management Readiness. Short break here, and she'll be back with us to walk through some more of those six material weaknesses the IG found were most significant in the department's first financial audit. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbia. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. We're talking in this part of the show with Carmen Malone, DOD's Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Audit and Financial Management Readiness, as we continue to go through the six material weaknesses the IG identified as the most significant ones in the first ever DOD financial audit. Moving on to number five, and I think this one may be the the easiest one to understand from a layman's perspective, because it's essentially balancing your checkbook, right? It, it says that literally DOD does not know how much money it has in the bank at any given time. That is correct. And this is um, an area that has gotten a lot of focus in the past and talking about adjustments and what we call unsupported adjustments. And And that is because at the end of the day, what the Treasury says we have is what we have. And so they are making strides and they have a lot of people working on this. The components themselves are are going to probably get there a little bit earlier than what we call the um, fourth estate funds, which is everyone but your major components, the Army, Navy, Air Force. So we they receive um, what we call 97 funds. That is their treasury index number. And it is 50 or more components that share this one check, checking account yet they don't have a way to kind of break out whose transactions belong to who. And that that becomes an issue because we do audit um, individual components within there, and we're having an issue with that. So um, I believe the report briefly discusses that the Defense Information System Agency, DISA, their audit was delayed due to fund balance of Treasury. And it all comes down to because they share that checkbook with so many other agencies that they are having a hard time breaking out just their transactions and ensuring that their balance is what it truly is and that they don't have somebody else's transactions in there and that their transactions aren't sitting on somebody else's um, accounts. So it ultimately comes down to they can't explain the difference between what they have on the records and what Treasury or the bank has on the records. One one thing that interests me in that area is DOD is generally very good at not violating the Anti-Deficiency Act, meaning it's it's not spending money it doesn't have. So considering that it doesn't have that accurate fund balance with Treasury picture, are they basically just erring on the side of being conservative and cautious and, and potentially not spending all the funds they have? No, I think this comes down to more of a bookkeeping issue in the sense that the department is very good at knowing what money was appropriated to them and how they're spending it, but making sure that that gets recorded into the accounting records correctly and where that cash flowed from, because within the department, we move, we, I don't want to say move, but 
we buy and trade intergovernmentally within DOD itself. So the Army may buy something from the Navy, and that cash needs to move over. Or the Navy might buy, some, might buy something or sell something to the Defense Logistics Agency, and that money has to exchange hands. And at the end of the day, sometimes there's either um, a slow process where it hasn't hit somebody's records yet. Um, there's intergovernmental eliminations as well. And so all of those little bookkeeping um, exercises can cause that difference. So we, at the end of the day, meaning the department, at the end of the day, look and say, what does Treasury say the department has? And we're going to match to Treasury at the end of the day. Now the exercise is, why don't we match now and how can we get there? And then how do we keep a sustainable process in place to where we don't get to here again? All right, let's quickly hit on number six, which is the process of putting together the actual paper financial statement itself. And I think it's fair to say a lot of the things that we've talked about so far feed directly into that problem, right? It does, um, as well as just the number of entities. There's also outside factors that can feed into this problem. But if you look at corporate America, typically from the time that they close until they file their financial statements, it can be somewhere between 30 and 90 days. Within the Department of Defense, one would argue that the largest you know, corporation or largest audit of all times, they literally have 45 days. And that includes making sure all of their components close as well. And so when the components have a delay in getting either data or getting through their audits or posting um, adjustments or getting their financial statements and AFRs corrected and audited, that delays the agency-wide. And so what we saw last year was just differences in what the components issued as financial statements and then what was rolled up into the agency-wide financial statement um, or consolidated into the agency-wide financial statements. There were differences, and um, a lot of that comes down to timing. And weak, not, I don't want to say weaknesses, but inability to make um, adjustments after the close of the financial statement system within DOD. And so just some timing issues caused that last year. They are currently trying to address that. I don't believe it's going to happen immediately, but the department is working to say, this is what we have to be at when we are ready to receive an opinion on the financial statements. Let's aim for that goal and adjust our processes to get to that goal rather than how can we, how can we continue working at the pace we're working at? They want to adjust their processes so it's sustainable and built in so as they move along, they know what they have to do and any process they have to put in place would have to fit in those timelines. So they are taking some, some action to, uh, to address this. Um, they do have some high-level meetings very frequently discussing just this and what the components, what support they need from the comptroller's office to make it happen for them and realizing how much they rely on each other to, to get the financial statement compilation accomplished. Carmen, before we let you go, this question may be in some ways difficult to answer since this really is the first department-wide audit and and it's probably going to be the baseline for how you measure progress going forward. But just based on what you've seen in the years leading up to the first audit, where would you point to as areas where, where DOD really clearly has made some concrete progress? Um, I think the 
that they have made some concrete progress in the, the biggest thing that we've seen this year was tone at the top, seeing that from the Secretary of Defense all the way down to the commanders at, at the bases, they understood the impact of this audit and stressed the impact of this audit. That has not been there in the past. And without that tone, we're not going to get the support we need at the bases to get the information and to get the audit accomplished. So that has been a huge aspect. Kind of bleeding into that, they are now tracking each and every individual deficiency, what we write up in notifications of findings and recommendations. They're tracking each one of these. They have um, requirements to have corrective action plans in certain timelines. And they are reporting at the highest levels within the department the um, the actions they're taking and the implementation that's happening and the results they're getting from, from those corrective actions. And seeing that process that we've never seen before is huge in the fact that if you're going to focus, if you're making people focus on the corrective actions and ensuring that those corrective actions address the problem, you you will make progress both in readiness towards the audit and operations, saving money. It's not going to happen overnight, but it is happening. And I am looking forward to fiscal year 19 to see the prog the additional progress we make um, and seeing how many NFRs people are able to close. And that's how we're going to kind of measure this progress and see, you know, what happens. But the one thing that everyone needs to understand is as we close certain deficiencies, that means we're going to be able to get a little further along in the audit, which is going to identify additional deficiencies. I don't think anyone should expect that this first year audit went out and identified all the deficiencies within the department. So I don't want the mistake out there that, you know, they, they all, they've received all their deficiencies and there'll be no more. There will be more. It's just further along in the process. And that's what we need to make sure that not just the department understands, but Congress and public understand that they are making progress as they go along. And, and I think another key piece of that database that you mentioned is that, unless I'm mistaken, there is an accountable individual for every single one of those NFRs. So they're not just, it's not just that they're documenting them, it's that they are making some individual person responsible for implementing those corrective action plans. That is correct. And, and those people must report um, frequently um, to the to the high, to their highest levels within their components, as well as all the way up to the Deputy Secretary of Defense right now, um, who then reports it to the to the Acting Secretary of Defense. Carmen Malone is DOD's Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Audit and Financial Management Readiness. She joined us to talk about the six most significant material weaknesses in the department's first ever financial audit. And again, we'll link to the IG's layman's explanation of the audit at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. Another short break, and when we come back, the longest government shutdown in history is now over, but it may not be the last one. We'll talk to one small business about how they survived the shutdown based on a lot of careful planning and experience. That's next on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Servio. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. 
With the longest government shutdown in history now in the record books, one of the impacts that got comparatively little attention was how the funding lapse impacted government contractors. And it might not even be right to use the past tense there because in a lot of cases, vendors are still feeling the effects, waiting for uh, federal agencies to work their way through a large backlog of overdue invoices and pay them for the work that they've already done. This is a show mainly about DOD, and even though this particular shutdown didn't affect the department directly, I still wanted to address the contractor angle in this week's program because, of course, DOD has been through shutdowns before, and it may well go through other ones in the future. So our guest for this part of the show is Alba Aleman. She is the CEO of Citizen, a small government contractor whose customers happen to be mostly the same government agencies who were affected by the shutdown. We recorded this conversation just before we knew that the shutdown was about to end, but it's still a relevant discussion. She talked with me mostly about how contractors can plan for shutdowns and how to take care of their people once a shutdown is underway. The first thing we decided early on, because we have had a lot of experience with shutdowns, is we're going to protect and serve our employees. We fundamentally believe that the company's profits are to protect and serve our employees first. So we developed a strategy which initially was a four-week strategy that was to engage our workforce internally. It is, I don't think people realize the impact to morale when you tell your employees they need to go home, even if you are paying them to go home, use up leave, and just sit. There's a very alienating effect to that. So the first thing we did is pull them all in and get them engaged in internal projects. Everything from proposals to uh, process improvement initiatives to we created a shutdown tiger team to develop options and model the impact of the shutdown. So they were engaged, rolled sleeves rolled up, they knew it was happening, they saw it, they were feeling it, it was palpable, they wanted to help, they launched campaigns across the company to increase communications with elected representatives, tweeting, forwarding my posts and creating new posts and and requesting and pleading for the end to the shutdown. So they've been actively engaged in this fight. For those of our employees that were not impacted, whose projects were not impacted, we got them donating hours. So in addition to the leave that an impacted employee had, Everyone else in the company donated leave. We have over 80 professionals that donated well over 2,000 hours of their own leave, and most of which depleted their entire balance of what was remaining in their leave category to those that got impacted. So in addition to getting folks working on an internal corporate initiative so they wouldn't have to do that burn down right away, then after two and a half to three weeks, we began to do the burn down of the leave. Those 2,000 hours are currently being burned by those impacted. We took the portion of our workforce that we could get on other projects, and we moved them over to those other projects to deliver meaningful outcomes on programs where they are badged and cleared and able to do work. And then we are now cycling through a more um, aggressive plan we were hoping we wouldn't have to get to week six, but all of our our five key leaders in the company have now, uh, effective January 1st, are working without pay. So they're the first ones. It's kind of what we call our onion approach. You start in the middle, the heart of the company, which is the part that hurts and you cry over the most. And the senior leaders, the, the five or six senior leaders across the company, they took the first hit by not taking any compensation in January in solidarity with 
our federal workers, the Coast Guard, and to protect our employees. The next layer has been shared services. So we have about 11 or 12 shared services professionals, and they've all been asked to take five. It's our take five program to just take five days, leave without pay, and just go do some fun stuff with your family, stay connected. Um, but taking five preserves people's jobs, and they've all leaned in hard and heavy in order to do that. So now they're cycling through the leave without pay for five days. That's what they've been asked to do. They've all, I've talked to each one of them one-on-one. -on -one. They've all agreed and some of them have actually said, no, I'm gonna work without pay. Just don't even worry about it from now on. I'm just gonna keep working because you need the work and just don't pay me. So they've leaned in harder because they see how hard the, the senior leaders have leaned in and they see the daily communications and they know we're being honest with them and that we're not trying to take anything from it, but we're trying to protect them. And then the next round begins on February 1st and those employees that are impacted and we have not been able to get onto other programs, they've been asked to take leave without pay for the pay period February 1st through the 15th. So they'll be on leave without pay. All the steps you just outlined, I mean, they sound incredibly detailed and very well thought through. And I'm just curious how, how much of that was born out of the experience of past shutdowns like 2013. I mean, did you did you have, in effect, a shutdown plan ready to go on the shelf for the next time a serious one happened? Well, of the things we talked about, uh, several of those items were, were tactics we deployed in 2013. The leave donation program was huge in 2013. We didn't have to go a day where a single one of our employees went without pay. And we had probably closer to 60 employees that were impacted back then, and we were a smaller company. So through leave donations, we were able to keep everybody paid. Uh, the cultural values around protecting and serving our employees first, that's something that's been with the company since inception. But it really becomes clear to our employees that that's real, it's not just they're not just words on a website. The shutdowns are an opportunity to engage a workforce and to be true to who you are in business and what you intend to do to support them. I've gotten also um, a number of things like engaging employees in assessing and modeling the impact. That's something we did last time. All of those things, the daily communications, we did that last time. Getting our folks to support us with reaching out to elected representatives, we did that last time. So there's a couple of things we probably have done differently now, just because we've gotten smarter and wiser to the importance of keeping our folks in the loop and part of the decision-making process that, that were born out of this one, but also the circumstances seem to be a little different this time. What about advanced communication though? I mean, be, beyond just having folks understand the, the, the corporate culture you described, did people basically have an understanding of, okay folks, if we ever have a shutdown again, this is, this is our game plan? Yes, the, our CFO published our shutdown game plan for the first uh, three weeks through January 15th. He published it I want to say it was three or four days before the actual shutdown began. So three to four days before the shutdown started, he published how we would handle it through January 15th. And he explained that plans evolve depending on the length of a shutdown, but this is the plan today. And so he began collecting leave hours as well before the, the shutdown actually began. What's your sense of, of what kind of difference that makes to your employees, just having them understand um, that 
that, that a that you do have a plan and and what the plan is. What it ha- what I've seen that has you know of course touched my heart is the overwhelming amount of support from everybody across the company. We support the IRS in twenty six different states, and some of those projects are not shut down. And the amount of support, both verbal and actual, tangible through financial support that we've received from every part of our organization has been incredible. The commitment, I get calls from employees regularly saying, I've got money in the bank. What do you need me to do? How can I help you fund payroll? Um, I'm willing to mortgage my house. Um, I'm willing to go without pay until the shutdown's over, no matter how long it lasts. I'm not in a situation where I'm living paycheck to paycheck. Or I will do whatever it takes. I'm keeping this company alive, and I'm going to do whatever it takes. I've never worked somewhere where the leaders operate this transparently and this compassionately. So for us, it's built enormous trust and camaraderie engagement across our workforce. It is a very difficult situation, but I am confident that it will make us stronger despite the many, many challenges that we're experiencing. Alba Aliman is the CEO of Citizent. We'll talk more about the shutdown survival strategies her firm used after one more break. This is on DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbin. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. A few more minutes here with Alba Aleman. She's the CEO of Citizen, a small government contractor that focuses mostly on IT modernization. We're talking about steps that company took to prepare for and survive the latest government shutdown. Another thing you guys have done is you've been very vocal uh, about the the shutdown's impacts and willing to communicate that in, in, in public ways, not just through this radio interview, but on social media, et cetera. And I think that's a contrast to the way some companies approach this, which is to kind of lay low or much lower than you have. Can you just talk us through that that decision that you made to be as public as you have about the impacts? Absolutely. Um The first thing I have to say is I'm an American. I wasn't born in the United States, but I am an American citizen. I value our rights as Americans to speak and to be truthful in our conversations and our communications. So I don't feel that my voice can be silenced. And I have encouraged all of my employees to speak their truth, whatever that is, as long as they do so professionally and in a nonpartisan manner. Don't want to get engaged in partisan politics. We're here to serve. We've got important missions. Our federal workers need us to toe the line on professional behavior and communications. So even myself, I've posted about six or seven articles on LinkedIn. And if you look at the trajectory of my LinkedIn profile, which has been around for a very long time, I've never posted a single article. I started on December 31st because I knew this was going to last and I'd already started getting calls from other small business owners that were much that are much smaller than us that were really concerned. So I figured I needed to get my message out to help them get through those initial those first few weeks. But every one of my communications and those on my team that have been forwarding and communicating um, those articles, including the open letter to the president, have been very professional, nonpartisan. We, we don't want to get caught up in any more debate, but it also doesn't serve our national security and economic interests as a country 
to continue to perpetuate this shutdown. This is going to hurt for a long time. You're in a position where, you know, all of your business virtually is is with the government, so it seems probably unlikely that you're going to walk away. But do you do you worry that other companies will, your suppliers or other firms who have a mix of commercial and government business? Absolutely. It happened the last time the shutdown took place. If you look at the two years following the last shutdown, more companies were leaving the government marketplace than ever before. And the growth of government contractors did not begin anew for another one to two years after that. So this is going to have a very damaging effect. Our folks happen to be very mission-focused and mission-oriented. So they choose to do the work that they do, as do I. And we understand that in order to serve, we make sacrifices. But there are companies that will not want to do this ever again. And these are companies that have innovation, tools, approaches, expertise, skills that our government does need. And that's a, that's going to take a long time to get back. Last question, I think. I mean, the obvious answer to this question is just end the shutdown. But But short of that, are there things that the administration, OMB, Congress could do in the meantime to at least mitigate some of the worst impacts that you're seeing? Absolutely. They could bring back all of the furloughed employees, federal employees that are processing invoices for government contractors because we are working, but they're not there to pay us. And we're, we're one of the few that have not issued any layoffs, that have not harmed our workforce because we want to be ready to serve when the government reopens. But in order to do that, they need to pay us what we're doing now. They need to pay us what they didn't pay us in December for November. It's not just old invoices they're sitting on. They're sitting on what we're doing now. And we will continue to hold uphold all our end of the bargain. And we will continue to protect our employees so that when they light up, again, we'll be there to serve so we don't lose institutional knowledge. But in addition to that, you lose clearances in the spaces that we work. We're three to six months away from restaffing those positions because those are very specialized clearances. So we're doing our part to protect our ability to come back day one, ready to go, fully staffed. I need them to pay those invoices. It's critical. Sorry, can you just explain the clearance piece of that? I'm, I'm not totally clear on what you meant. I, I, I know a lot of periodic reinvestigations, for example, aren't happening right now, but what, what were you getting at there? So if we lose workforce because we lay them off, or we stop paying them, because that's also another thing that companies have engaged in. They're not out there telling you that they're laying their folks off because that doesn't have a great perception. But once those employees leave, runs out, they're not paying them because they don't have any leave left. So they haven't laid them off, but they're literally not getting paid. Well, we haven't done that to our employees. It's been volunteer army up until now. But if our workforce chooses to leave in the certain spaces that we work, some of those organizations like Department of Justice, it could be 90 days before we get clearances. At the, at the Department of Homeland Security, it could be three to six months. At the IRS, we might get a clearance in six months, but you don't get a laptop and a badge for a year. So the lost productivity on programs when you lose staff is, is astounding. 
And we're trying not to do that. We're, we're holding up our end of the bargain to be ready to start these mission-critical mission programs day one. So I do need to get paid for that work. The work that not just we do, but that all federal contractors and federal employees do matters, matters in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. And I appreciate that you do take the time to do these kinds of interviews and assess the impact and, and communicate that to a broader audience. So thank you. Alba Aliman is the CEO of Citizent, a small IT services contractor that was severely affected by the shutdown. Earlier in the hour, we talked with Carmen Malone from the DOD Inspector General's office for a good plain language summary of the findings from DOD's first financial audit. If you missed that discussion, we'll post this week's full program at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. You can also listen in our podcast feed. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's program. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.